letter to the church in Thyatira, verses 18 to 29. And come to what has been noted to be the longest and most difficult of the seven letters. It's addressed to the least known and uh, least important, least remarkable of the seven cities in Asia Minor. It was a church, or rather a city, that was somewhat insignificant in the ancient world, at a crossroads, as it were. And yet, Jesus' actions, his words to the church, were of central importance, are of central importance, and can teach the church throughout the ages. And we look at them with interest, even if we do not understand all of what is being said to them, all of the background, we want to give our attention to God's word and to learn from it what we can. Revelation chapter 2, looking at verses 18 to 29, this is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever for our instruction to point us to the ever-living God. People of God, the city of Thyatira is unlike the earlier cities that we've mentioned, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. Those were large cities, important centers of commerce. Thyatira was not so large, not so important, more out of a city at a crossroads on the way between the cities. All three of these former cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, were dominated by various forms of paganism. Christians in Ephesus lived in the shadow of the temple of Diana, of Artemis, and their life was dominated by all of the, all of the teaching and the pressures around that cult. 
Cities of Smyrna and Pergamum were filled with pagan temples, and as we saw last week, also filled with temples to Roman, uh, to Roman emperor, to the Roman emperor. Christians living in these cities found themselves facing death and imprisonment at the hands of the beast, as John sees it in Revelation chapter 13, the, the inspired government, or if you want to call it inspired, the, that which is uh, satanically empowered, we could put it that way, perhaps better, the satanically empowered Roman government. There's a battle going on. Not only that, in these cities there are secularized Jews who are uh, wanting to participate in society and so they, are, uh, uh, they have set aside their pure worship of Yahweh and they have engaged in all of the, the rules for commerce in that area, confessing the right of Caesar to be worshipped and pointing out that the Christians would not do that. They would not worship Caesar and they would then say these these dirty people need to be punished. And they made sure the city officials would exclude them from society. There was plenty of outside pressure and attack on the churches. Well, there was also attack from within. We saw that last week in Pergamum. There they faced a subtle subtlety of the enemy of the church. They're be taken in by false teachers who seduced some of them into thinking they could confess Jesus as Lord and participate in the immoral practices of these, of these cults, of these religious systems, and even that by, required by the state to serve two masters, as it were. That's what the call was. It was to serve, well, yeah, serve Christ and then serve Rome. What's the problem? Sure, if you want to serve your tribal deity, as the Roman government said, fine. But, but the emperor receives the ultimate worship. The state is to be worshipped. We find our life in the state. We prop up the state because there we find our confidence, our strength for the future. And as we recognized last week, and as we see again today, the Christian says, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And there is bound to be a conflict. And in that day, they were called atheists, as I mentioned some weeks ago, because they didn't worship all of the pagan gods. They didn't worship the emperor. Kind of a strange way of using that word. We often think of atheists as those who don't believe in Christ. And they were taking that in a very religious society to mean uh, that the Christians were not worshiping the gods of civilization. And we say, well, no, no, you don't understand. That's not atheism. And they said, yes, it is. The gods we see are right in front of us. We control them. The Christians say, no, the God who is reigns above the heavens, the earth, and is Lord over the nations, as we saw this morning. We can't serve two masters. We can't serve two religious systems. And that was a challenge being faced here uh, in the church at Thyatira as well. There was a Jezebel in her midst, is what Jesus says, teaching the people that they could have solid doctrine and live immorally and live in divided allegiance. Christ begins with a word of commendation, his word to the church, then secondly, begins with a word of commendation to the church at Thyatira for their persevering witness. He says there in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service 
and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But then he turns to give warning, verse 20. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The point to be noted here, at least one of the points, teaching points that we note here, is it's possible to be faithful in witness, wanting to go out with the gospel and yet not discerning at home. To, to let things slip, as it were, close to home. It's possible to be eager to bring people in. And once they're in, we don't pay too much attention to what they teach, or we just let it slide and say, well, you know, they're, they don't really, they don't really aren't hurting anybody. And yet here, in this situation, there was damage taking place. There was false teaching taking place within this church. It's possible to be so concerned about numbers that we don't discipline those to hold the false teaching. We're going to see, or we can, we can see that now. Thyatira is a small city with a small church. And boy, when you get numbers together and it's a small number, you, you don't want to let anybody go. You don't want to see anybody turned away. So you just kind of let things go along and you don't worry so much about what they're teaching because you don't want to see them and their followers go with them. Christ warns this church, there is a Jezebel among you. That could be an individual. It's not altogether clear. could be that there's an individual speaking, uh, being spoken of here, but it seems to indicate, the text seems to indicate that Jezebel was a group because Jezebel, it speaks of the woman and her children in the church. She and those who commit adultery with her, verses 22 and 23, her children. Whether it's an individual or a group, the the warning is the same. Do not tolerate false teaching. Do not tolerate false teachers. The warning might be harder to follow through if the group is small because we don't want to lose anyone. Yet the false teaching is deadly. Thyatira had many trade guilds. Each had idol gods associated with them. And if you were going to conduct any sort of business, if you were going to be involved at all in, that, in the commerce of that region, you had to engage in all of the, or you had to be a part of these, tra- these guilds, these unions, and then you had to participate also in the practices of these of these guilds. This false teacher or this group within the church was saying to those believers, that's not, that's not a problem, just follow Christ on Sunday and then Monday through Saturday, live with the world, act in keeping with those teachings. It's okay. That's his divided allegiance. And Jesus says to them, no, no, you need to stop tolerating that false teaching. Well, the name's Jezebel, that Jesus chooses this, word, this name, then points us back to the Old Testament. Who was Jezebel? Well, she was that daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, who married the king of Israel, Ahab, who's not known for his great spirituality, shall we say. And she's running things. She's in charge, if you remember, back in 1 Kings chapter 16. Again, all through the, the, his reign and in Second Kings. 
She marries Ahab and she leads the people to worship other gods. And we think to ourselves, well, how serious could that be? But when we see how big it had become, we realize things can start small, but they can grow. What, how many prophets, children, do you remember, how many prophets of Baal were there by the time Elijah had that, had that confrontation on Mount Carmel? There were 450 prophets of Baal. Well, this is no small, off in the corner, little religious celebration. This is a system to have 450 prophets speaks of a large following to obtain all the sacrifices, to administer all of the religious accoutrements with that false religion. She had been very influential in leading Israel into sin and even threatened a prophet of God, saying, if your life is not like the prophets of Baal, so be it. I will see to it that you are dead. It's a small, it seems like a very small thing to begin with, but it becomes something very big and very threatening. Jesus uses that word, that name, Jezebel, to get us to think about that Old Testament background. He says to the church at Thyatira, this is a dangerous situation. You have a Jezebel within your midst. He had given her time to repent, verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Therefore, he says, I'm going to punish her and her children, verses 21 to 23. I gave her time to repent. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. What happens when false teaching comes about? Tribulation, he says. The sin is the judgment. What do you, what do you have when, when, when the sin festers? You have all kinds of tribulation. You have cacophony. You have confusion. We see the modern church today so confused about what, what, what is the church's mission? What are we about? What are we to be doing? What are we to be teaching? What's going to work, it seems to be, is the, is the, the, the going uh, uh, means of, of evaluation of any system. What works? Let's find out what works to grow the church numerically. Jesus says that will cause tribulation, not, not health. Children, discipline is necessary. Scripture says that. It says that God disciplines those he loves. Your parents discipline you because they don't want you to grow in sin. They want you to grow in holiness. They want you to learn the ways of God. So they set example for you and they also at times call you back. Sometimes painfully so. The writer of Hebrews admits that. He says it's, it's not pleasant at the time. It's rather painful. But in the end... It is for good. We exercise discipline in the church, too, as we saw, sadly, this morning, to call people out of sin. And if they do not turn from sin, we're commanded to remove them so the church will be protected. We don't know what Jesus 
meant here when he speaks of giving this Jezebel time to repent, but he warns that he will bring severe judgment upon this teaching unless they repent. Verse 22. There's room for that possibility, and that's our hope. In in discipline, we're hoping that it it shows the, the, the gravity of the situation. This is serious. This needs to be turned away from. He gives the possibility for repentance. Jesus is patient. But note this, dear people of God, he is not naive nor timid when he protects his church. The love of Jesus has concern for the purity of his bride as well as the safety of his bride, and those two cannot be separated. The purity, the following of the truth, is necessary for the protection of the bride. He is washing his bride with the word, with the truth, sanctifying his people. We often think of Jesus as the shepherd, right? We like Psalm 23, and we think of this very serene setting, and there's Jesus with the sheep leading them to green grass. But what is the picture he gives as he opens the letter to the church at Thyatira? Did you notice that? The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He is the head of the church whom he has purchased with his blood, we read in Acts 20, and he protects in perfect power, having eyes like flame of fire, giving reference to that vision that Daniel saw in uh, uh, Daniel 10, where it says the Son of Man, the one who is the Son of God, sees, and he will judge the enemies of God's people. That's what those chapters are there in Daniel, from Daniel 10, 11, and 12. It's all about God will certainly judge the enemies of God's people, and he will do so through the Son of Man, through his Son, Son of God. We sang about that tonight, didn't we? Ferris Lord Jesus, Son of Man, Son of God. One who is our nature, one who is eternal with the Father. He searches mind and heart, verse 23 says. The wicked will not get away with their sin, though they think they will. Last week we read Psalm 36. You remember what the wicked said there. They they flattered themselves thinking, well, no one sees. No one sees my sin. And yet we're reminded by this image of Christ as the head of the church with eyes of fire that he sees and knows. He sees what they are dealing with in Thyatira. He says, I know what you're dealing with. And he warns that he will come in judgment against those who do not walk in the truth. Remember what happened to Jezebel. You can turn back to 2 Kings chapter 9 and see that. Judgment, when it came in the person of Jehu, what does Jezebel do? She tries to charm Jehu, doesn't she? Listen to what it says there, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? There's history there. We won't go into that, but you can look at that. And Jehu lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? 
Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Small number. And he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no one or no more rather of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah Elijah the Tishbite. When he said, In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can can say, This is Jezebel. Not even recognizable. A sudden end. A warning to those who do not walk in the truth who are like this Jezebel. A harsh end to what? To whom? To a very flamboyant and very persuasive and very powerful speaker. If she lived today, and perhaps she does in another form, she would command a large audience. Lots of people would follow. A teacher, wise, so say those who follow. Very persuasive, powerful. But remember the end of the wicked. The psalmist says they're destroyed in a moment, swept away like a passing dream. It's described elsewhere in Proverbs 10 as the wicked will rot away. The memory of them will be forgotten. Jesus has a word for those who have not turned and followed Jezebel. Verses 25 to 28, he says this. I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Remember, dear people of God, how the church is described. The church is described as the pillar and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy chapter 3 has the calling to hold on to the truth, hold fast what you have until I come. The imagery here, that ruler who rules with a rod of iron, smashing the nations as earthen pots broken in pieces, is the imagery found in Psalm 2. There in Psalm 2 we read of Jesus as the Son of God. There's that There's that imagery at the opening of this letter. He is the Son of God. The Lord says, My Son, I have set you on on my holy hill. God the Father's King has been set on the holy hill. He rules by inheritance. He rules in might. He comes. You say, now that seems very sudden. He comes to a world that stands opposed to him. And he comes to establish his kingdom by his word of power. Today is the day of salvation, but at his coming, he will bring judgment. He opens the letter with that title, doesn't he? The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. We won't look at that second Part of verse 18, there's too much there to cover tonight. 
But he shows that he has authority over all powers, including the false prophets. Including the false prophets who are servants of Satan. That's how they're revealed later in the book of Revelation. So what, what John sees, what he hears, he says he wants the church to understand. These false prophets, they work for, they are under Satan. Don't play with Satan. Verse 28, he says, and I will give him the morning star. I will give him. Who's the him? The one who conquers. Verse 26, who keeps my words until the end. The believer. Jesus says that he will give the one who perseveres the bright morning star. It has an Old Testament reference, doesn't it? It refers back to Numbers 24 and the story of the false prophet Balaam. Remember how God has supreme authority over that false prophet. He says to Balaam, you may say only what I say you can say. You may do only what I say you may do. And Balaam thinks, well, I, I, I'll, I'll agree part to that, and I'll, but I'll go and, and, and we'll see how things work out. And a donkey has to tell him that he's going on a fool's errand if he thinks he's going to do anything other than what God tells him to do. A beast of burden has more, more sense than the false prophet. Well, Balak hires Balaam to call down a curse upon Israel. Balaam says that he could not. Balak tries to move him, thinking, well, he's, he's just like all these other deities. He's a territorial god. He's, just, he's got power here. Let's move Balaam over to another, another part of the valley, maybe over there. Then he can feel free to say what he needs to say or what I want him to say. And Balaam says, you don't understand. God is not like these territorial gods that you're so familiar with. He is God over all. And I cannot speak other than what he has told me to speak. Before Balaam leaves, he prophesies about what Israel, God's blessed people, would do to the nations. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the nations, but Israel will grow strong. Now we connect this star with Christ because God's word does so. At Christ's birth, the Magi come from the east and they say, we've seen the star, we've seen his star rising in the east and we've come to worship him. Peter picks up on the imagery in 2 Peter when he says that Christ's glory, when he speaks of Christ's glory being revealed, he declares that his glory is seen in the word. God, by his spirit, causes his light, his understanding to shine upon the heart of the sinner so that the morning star rises in the believer's heart. 2 Peter 1, verse 19. What does Jesus say of himself at the end of the book? Book of the Revelation, verse 16 of chapter 22. Christ declares, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. What's he saying to the people here? He's saying, I will give myself to the believer. I will reign over the church, over the world, and I intend to give myself to my people. That they may no longer walk in darkness. As the prophet Isaiah testifies in Isaiah 9, they walked in darkness, but now they have seen a great light. The light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's word to Thyatira. Well, what is his word to us as we think about this today? 
What is Christ's word to the church today? He warns about false teachers who are servants of Satan seeking to work mischief in the church. Remember the church at Thyatira was small and they felt they couldn't afford to lose anyone. So they tolerated this false teaching, this false teacher in their midst, hoping that their faithful witness would just kind of even it out, would keep it in check. That's how often, that is often how churches come to the conclusion today it's better to leave false teaching alone. We don't want to lose anybody, is the, so it goes, so it's said. We don't want to lose anyone. You know, well, it's a mission project. We'll just, we'll just keep them close, and, and, and that way then, then they'll hopefully hear and learn. Meanwhile, they're having an adverse impact on the congregation, and it's known. We must not forget that the church's power does not come from its numbers, Nor do we seek to set up our shop next to the world's show to try and fit in. As we heard this morning, we're a new people, residents of an eternal kingdom, which is to come. And we must hold fast to the truth. That's Jesus' words to us today as well, verse 25. We live in an increasingly hostile world. There is little morality to appeal to today. And great pressure to participate in the sins of a wicked culture. How does the present moral climate affect you? What what difference does it make if we legalize this or legalize that? We hear it again and again from the secular talk shows. And the question is, well, how does it affect me? Well, if I don't say this is good and don't endorse it, I lose my job. The diversity police come along and they make me take a quiz. And if I fail, I'm fired. That has a huge effect. That's the pressure we're feeling here in Thyatira. That's the pressure we feel today. It's not, as I've said, and and, and I say it again, it's not just, well, you just live and let live and do your thing. It's, no, 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 this is good, and you will endorse it, and you uh, you will celebrate it, and you will participate, or else. Well, This affects the church, perhaps, even. Her tax-exempt status seems to be in the crosshairs in the latest Senate bill. I don't think I need to unpack that for you, but I can if you want to talk to me afterwards. It comes close to home. Marriage is a gospel issue. Why? How do we we say, who cares? Pastor... Who cares about marriage? Just let it happen. Marriage is a gospel issue because in Ephesians chapter 5, it it speaks of Christ and the church and it lays it out in biblical terms. It doesn't say however you define it, which then makes a complete mess of the scripture. And soon you say, well, the Bible doesn't speak to us because we don't recognize that type of marriage. We don't see it that way. It's tribulation, it's confusion. When that false teaching sets in. And what do we do? We protect the church, protect the body of Christ from false teachers and hold fast to the truth. We encourage each other in this. And it is close to home. We have in our evangelical and reformed circles those who hold and teach unbiblical things about marriage, sex, and gender and refuse to repent. It's tempting to let this pass. Reformed Christians are a small fish in a big pond. These people who are teaching this have publishing contracts, they have connections, they're well-respected in academic environments. 
They're effective communicators. They're on the speaker circuit, and on and on it goes. The response is, well, just let it ride. It'll be okay. It doesn't affect us. But it does. Because that false teaching is now connected with an evangelical and reformed institution. And we say, well, now which is it? Is this, is, do we believe this? Is that what we believe? Seems like that's what we believe. Should we let it ride? Can we let it ride? Should we ignore Christ's words of warning and not stand against false teaching? I'm told I don't need to give names or to refer to specific situations that you know what I'm talking about or about certain situations. If you don't know what I'm talking about, come and talk to me because you need to know. Don't be naive. Don't have your head in the sand. We say, ah, it's not in our camp. Well, it is. It's in our evangelical and reformed colleges. And then I ask this question, genuine question, do we let those institutions just, we let them go? I don't know. Do we? Do we just say, well, no, that, that, just let them go. I don't think we should give up so easily. I know about the Daniels who were raised in the University of Babylon. I get that. But there was teaching when they were young that helped them cope with Babylon University when they got there. What do we do? Well, I think we do pay attention to the institutions which bear the moniker, the title of evangelical and reformed, because they're the ones that are producing the students who are going to be the future teachers who are going to be teaching our young children. There's a divide coming. On the one side, you have those churches, those schools which hold the Bible's authority. On the other side, you will have those who say they hold the Bible but kill the authority of Scripture with a thousand qualifications in their interpretation. Well, yeah, I know what it says, but, you know, I mean... You say, well, what is it? Do you believe it or don't you? Do you hold to it or don't you? Do you hold fast or do you hold loosely? I don't know. I don't have all the answers to that. But do we just throw the institutions away and ignore what they're doing? Send our kids off to state universities and say, well, that's all right. I don't know. But we need to be careful of what's being taught. Young people, listen. It's not easy to be a Christian. It has been. Years past, it's been very easy. We don't face a lot of tribulation in this country, and yet it's coming. And we're a small group, and we may be getting smaller through testing, through pruning. But don't think because you're part of a small group that you're on the wrong side of history. And somehow you're just, yeah, maybe I haven't followed the right path. Maybe I'm not on the right track. Maybe the world is a bigger place and God is a smaller deity than I thought all this time. Maybe he just fits alongside of all the others. 
Don't believe it. Hold fast to the truth until he comes. And we're not promised that the world's going to love us and respect us. We're not promised that if we trust in God, he will give us, or we are promised that he will, he will give us what we need. Yet he will teach us what we need to know and fill us with faith, hope, and love to sustain us in a world which is no friend of grace. Christ wants us to prepare for his coming. For the coming day when he comes and when we will reign with him and govern alongside of him. The call is to keep our eyes upon Christ, who is that bright morning star. The one who points to that coming day of noonday brightness. That is the establishment of his kingdom when he comes in all his glory. Hold fast what you have until I come. And I will give the morning star. That you might walk in newness of life, in the light of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. Let's hold fast to that. Amen. Dear Father, we pray for discernment, for courage. We pray for a clear understanding that you will give us what we need. The psalmist said tonight, not that he's never seen the righteous facing affliction, but that he's not seen them begging for bread. Lord, we know the church of Smyrna faced even poverty, but you, Lord Jesus, said they were rich. May we be those who are desiring to calculate or to measure our richness by how we walk with you, not by how the world views us or praises us or establishes us. Help us to hold fast, to turn from sin, to walk in newness of life. Hear us, Father, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.